and a very warm welcome to the Posterity Podcast with me, Nigel Dugdale. The Posterity Podcast is brought to you by the Limerick Post, working in association with Limerick City Community Radio. Over the coming weeks and months, I will introduce you to a diverse range of voices from across many sectors in Limerick society. Some you'll know, others maybe not so much. I hope this podcast will capture the voices of those who see Limerick as home. I hope to get an understanding of what makes them tick and to discover their hopes and dreams for Limerick at a time when so much opportunity is in our grasp. The official definition of posterity relates to all future generations of people. These people of the future could be your children, your grandchildren or great-grandchildren, or any people born after you. So every decision we make today, be it by those in power, in business circles, or in community development, will affect the lives of those coming behind us. This podcast will tell people stories, capture their voices for posterity, and delve into the ideas, ambition, and hopes that they have as we prepare for and sow the seeds for the Limerick of tomorrow. I hope you join me on this journey. I hope you enjoy listening to the stories you hear. And most of all, I hope some of what you hear will inspire you. Do get in contact with me if you have any suggestions for future guests, questions I might ask, or just general feedback on the show. So, Jan, you're very welcome to the studio. Thanks very much, Nigel. Good to be talking to you. Jan, tell me a little bit about, we all know you from the political world. We know your, we know your, your track record in Limerick. You've been mayor of Limerick. You've, you've played so many roles um, down through the years. But where did you grow up? I grew up in Clanlara, so I was a country girl. Um, but I suppose I knew the city from quite early on because I went to school, both national school and secondary school in Limerick. And um, my grandparents, actually, my father's parents lived in Ranks Yard. So um, I suppose amongst my early memories of Limerick would have been going in uh, past the silos into Ranks um, and going up to the top of the yard where my grandparents lived. And you're saying that they lived in the yard? They were, yeah. were they, they were obviously working there in some My somewhere. grandfather had some role to do with the lorries. I'm not actually sure exactly what he did. Um, he died when I was nine, so I suppose I'm, I'm going back quite a long way. And um, there were two houses up at the top of the yard. And the people who lived in the other house uh, looked after the horses because the horses uh, pulled the carts with the flour as well as the lorries that drove around the country. So they were the two houses up at the top of the yard. And um, I remember well going from school um, up in, up the yard, uh, up to the top of the yard in ranks. Um, so that's kind of part of my memory of Limerick. And the other is going to school. And uh, where did you go to school? I went to school in St. Michael's in Perry Square. So um, the People's Park obviously was right beside us. And ironically, my office for the last many years Heartstone was Street. in Hearthstone Street, very, very close to where I went to school. So, um, so while I did grow up in the country, uh, in Clanlara, I was very much, I suppose, familiar with Limerick as well. What sort of family background? I mean, had brothers and sisters? One brother, older than me, and uh, that was it. So My the, the, parents the actually moved uh, to Clanlara when they got married, uh, bought an acre of land, a house that had no electricity or running water at the <laughs> time, and um, just basically built it up from there. Now, we did have electricity when I was born, but um, so very much. Um, and what sort of industry were your parents in? Was My it father was a journalist. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, he worked. Uh, actually for the Limerick Weekly Echo, which was, I suppose, in some ways similar to the Limerick Post, a small newspaper in Limerick at the time. And later on in his life, he worked for the leader after the Limerick Weekly Echo closed. But I don't know if many listeners would remember the Limerick Weekly Echo, but it was beside McCurran's printing works. Uh, and it was printed in there in McCurran's in Glentwood Street there near the Dominican Church. So I remember that as well, going into my father in there and the big, huge printing presses um, turning over uh, right beside where my father's office was. So he used to cycle into work. We didn't have a car. and um, From Clanlara? From Clanlara, yeah, in and out to work, um, whistling most of the way. <laughs> um, so uh, so I suppose that was another memory of Limerick uh, back then in the, in the printing. So my father used to bring home newspapers, mostly provincial newspapers at the end of the week, um, from not just Limerick, but from other parts of Munster as well. Um, so I suppose maybe... That started my interest in politics. I don't know because I was kind of hearing, seeing news, hearing about news. And um, my parents were not party political, but 
you know, they were interested in. Well, certainly, yeah, as, well. as a journalist, he would have been. Yeah. When you were a young girl, I mean, what were your, if you were in a sixth class or you were going into first year and someone mm. had said to you, Jan, what would you like to be when you grow up? What would, I'm what would you have said? I was a teacher. <laughs> and I was, was a teacher for, yeah. for a period of time, yeah. I would never have dreamt of being a politician at that stage. And what was it about teaching that, that attracted you? Um, I, 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 I don't know, I suppose I was always interested in, in education. I was kind of, I, I liked learning. <laughs> were, were you um, studious? Or I, I probably was, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, yeah, I did English and French in college and then I did my HDIP and uh, I taught just for two years at second level. And then I got married and moved to Canada for a year and a half. My husband was working in hospitals in Canada on kind of um, six month slots. So we're only there for a year and a half. But my first child was born over there. But maybe it was because I had had a child, but I got very interested in early education in uh, um, uh, so I did a Montessori course by correspondence. Right. And uh, when I came back to Ireland, then I completed the course, got the exam, and uh, I had a small preschool in my house then after that. So I actually never went back to school teaching, but um, I ran So it was Montes Montessori really, Montessori, or you, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, when you were a young person studying in Limerick, I mean, obviously the People's Park was your playground, obviously, well, in school. Well, we weren't really supposed to go into okay. the park. <laughs> but memories of Limerick City at that time, yeah. you know, what, what are your earliest memories? Um, I wouldn't have known the geography of Limerick, if you want to put it that way, um, but I would have... Um, like we would have come in through Corbally where I suppose the house I live in now was was there, but a huge amount of what is Corbally now wasn't there. Um, I didn't really, apart from sort of the ones I've described, which, you know, ranks and around the People's Park and um, McCurran's Printing Works, which was quite near the People's, well, quite near where I went to school as well, and the Limerick Weekly Echo Office in Glentford Street. I didn't really know the rest of Limerick until I got, I was much older. Um, so you really were, a, you were the person who was based in the countryside, was, really. And, yeah, and Clanlar, yeah, I suppose, you know, yeah. now we see it as being a suburban area. Yeah. Um, it was, but it was I far suppose, out. Again, one of the things that might have got me involved in politics was that when you live in the country, you don't notice much difference between people's lifestyle, people's opportunity. People are pretty much doing the same thing. Not very much, actually, when you live in the country, but obviously. Not so <laughs> a few farmers might have a bit of an issue around, with but, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, in those days, you yeah. know, there wasn't a huge social life involved in living yeah. in the country. But um, I think one of the things that probably shocked me into political activity was the difference in a city between people who were fairly well off and people who weren't and people who had opportunity and people who didn't. And um, I think that might have got me interested in the early education thing as well, the importance of early intervention for children. Hmm. Um, and I was shocked, not just because I went to college in Dublin, but I was shocked both in Dublin and Limerick at the difference between, you know, how some people have to live and how other people have relative, relatively good opportunities. And it is a fascinating city when you look and you think that, you know, you can have the Ennis Road and you can have St. Mary's Park within, yeah. you know, throwing distance of each mm. other and yet fundamental differences in terms of both how people live, yeah. how people are treated mm. and, and the opportunities that are given to them. So it's, you know, mm. it is, I suppose it happens in every city, but Limerick is particularly as a small compact city, it, it, it's, it's much more visible here. It is. And the, I suppose the, the better off parts of Limerick are very close to the not well off parts of Limerick, if you like. And um, I, I think that really did motivate me to, I suppose, to get involved in left wing politics in the kind of politics that was about, you know, trying to get more opportunity, more equality. Um, and my ward, when I was eventually elected back in 1985 to the council, to Limerick City Council, was uh, would have included St Mary's Park, for example. So it was um, the the ward that included. Uh, it was a mix again. Mm. You know, it, it went from Gary Owen, crossed through Corbally, St Mary's Park, out the north side. Um, so it was a mixture of of the different, I suppose. Um, you know, stratas of society. And um, I still feel very passionate about the fact that people in certain parts of Limerick, despite the efforts, I suppose, that have been made through regeneration and so on, there's still, and, and the schools are brilliant. I mean, I have the greatest of time for the Desh schools in Limerick. Uh, these would be the schools in the various communities who have really done, done you know, a marvellous job. I think, I, you know, I would praise every single school and teacher in those areas in what they do. But um, it's very, you know, it's still, it's still, you know, the opportunities for young people to actually 
get on are still difficult enough, mm. you know, and that's something that I would, you know, always be interested in, always want to... You you came from a Protestant background. Yes. And it'd be right, interesting yeah. to know, um, I remember growing up and we had next door neighbours who were Protestants and so, you know, on Sundays we were allowed to play soccer after our half hour mass, but, <laughs> yeah. but they would have to go to Sunday school, they'd be out all day and they were raging. Well, but we no. always see or saw them and it's, yeah. it's only we, as kids, yeah. we saw there was a difference there, there was a strange little... Did you ever feel different in Limerick, you know, it was a small community, really. Yeah, wasn't well, it? part of it was that I had to go to school in Limerick, and all the people around me went to the local school. Um, but my parents wouldn't have been, you know, I didn't have to. I could play soccer if I wanted to on a Sunday, even though girls didn't play soccer really in those days. No, I mean we were we weren't. My my parents were not kind of strict in that sense. They we did go to church every Sunday, but um, you know they weren't strict about what we did. Uh, I mean, my father was very into sport anyway, so he'd probably listening to soccer matches on a Sunday himself, you know, so... Um, did your politics ever, or did your religion ever come in? Did, did you ever face issues in terms of um, your political life? I did read that there, there were certain times when you were, there were things issued, you know, there was issues yeah. around you as mayor and things there like that. There was one particular issue, yeah. Um, what was the part, how did, what was that, that about? That was, um, and that was the poor old former Bishop Jeremiah Newman. Um, and um, I, there was a tradition that um, for Civic Week, um, there was a service in St. Mary's Cathedral, I think it was at the start of the week, and St. John's at the end of the week, whichever anyway. But um, the tradition was that the mayor read the lesson, or one of the lessons, and um, the bishop insisted that I couldn't read a lesson <laughs> in St. John's Cathedral uh, because I wasn't a Catholic. And it became a national issue, um, and the, the city manager, in fairness to him, um, he refused to read a lesson as well because the mayor wasn't allowed to read the lesson. So, um, What year was, was that? Uh, 94, probably, 94. I was mayor from 93 Doesn't it just show you how yeah. times have changed but very quickly? But I have quickly. to say, subsequently, I did read a lesson in, in the Catholic Church um, right. as a public rep. And um, a, a bishop after that was quite happy about it. So you were saying <laughs> that... <laughs> you were saying you're, um, you're, you're branching into the education side of things, maybe sort of your father's journalism um whet your appetite for politics. Mm. At what point did you really, like, I suppose, when did you join a political party for the first time and why? Yeah, well, I, as, as I said, I had lived in Canada for a year and a half, came back and I suppose I became very conscious of, uh, you know, a lot of things about Ireland that I didn't really like. Um, I like got, what? Uh, well, like the, the family planning clinic was one of the campaign, was one of the issues that I was involved in from when I came back. Uh, I, I suppose I got involved in the women's movement, really, and things like equal pay for equal work were, were things we fought for in those days for women. Um, it wasn't that long before that that the marriage bar, you know, where married when women got married, they had to give up their job if they worked in public service. Um, so it was very much, I suppose, women's involvement was, was the thing that, first of all, motivated me, as well as the, the things like education and equality and so on. Um, and the family planning clinic was just starting in Limerick. Uh, and Jim Kemi was the person really who inspired me to get into politics. Um, he would have been involved in, you know, I suppose, trying to bring Ireland into a bit more of a modern era uh, around a number of issues and rights issues and equality issues and so on, um, as well as being an absolute stalwart of Limerick politics and straight out of, you know, his own community in Gary Owen. And he was an amazing person. And um, so I was involved with a, a feminist group at that stage. And um, I knew somebody who canvassed with Jim. And so I approached him and said, I'd like to get involved. Um, so I just became a canvasser with Jim Kemi. And uh, subsequently then Jim formed a party, a political party himself, called the Democratic Socialist Party. And um, I was involved in that from the start. And when I was first elected to Limerick City Council in 1985, it was as a member of the Democratic Socialist Party. Um, we didn't have very many um, public reps. We had three actually in Limerick at that time on the council, Jim, myself and one other. Uh, and there were a few in Dublin, but it was really, it never became a national party. So in 1990, um, we merged with the Labour Party. Okay. Um, so that's how I ended up being that's how a you Labour were there. Party. I'm fascinated by Jim Kemi because I do remember when I was a kid, I used to get the bus to Castle Troy for after school and art school and I'd be standing outside Penny's and he'd regularly walk up 
mm. um, the street and he'd often stop and he was often stopping to people and there was a story I heard that he used to carry around I don't know if it's true but he used to carry around a pocket full of change that whenever he'd meet someone mm. that maybe needed it he'd be mm. able to give them a little mm. bit and he was a guy when I was a young 16, 17 year old he fascinated me he was a big man and he but I never got to meet him I never mm. got to be in his presence and get to understand him could you mm. just explain to listeners who mightn't have ever come yeah. across him what sort of a guy he was uh, he was an extraordinary person he was a stonemason worked for the council uh, as a stonemason for many years he had emigrated to England and I think he, he would often have said himself that it was when he was in England that he kind of discovered reading books became very much self-educated, um, got involved in workers' rights. And so he came back to Ireland and um, he became an activist. And um, he was an amazing person. He was great company, first of all. He was great fun. But he was also, I suppose, very strongly motivated to um, bring Ireland into a more modern era. So he got involved in, in issues that didn't win in votes, like things like family planning didn't win in votes at the time. But he also was very much involved in fighting for the rights of people in Limerick, uh, you know, the rights of workers, um, people's right to housing. He was he used to bring people up and down for to the, the housing officer of the council every day of the week. Um, he was there for everybody. You know, he was one of these politicians who, as you said, he'd walk down the street, he'd be stopped about 15 times walking down to a council meeting. So I was like, I got to know him very well because I was on the council with him. Um, and, he, and when I actually went to national politics, I ran in a couple of elections with Jim. Um, I was a two or three. I didn't get elected. No, two. I ran in two elections with Jim. And, um, but the second one that I ran in, no, sorry, the first one. Um, I was. It was the time when the Labour Party got a lot of seats, and so I got the opportunity to run for the Shannon after that election, even though I wasn't elected. And uh, so I was a senator then mm -hmm. for a number of years, and eventually, sadly, Jim died in 1997. And he was young, wasn't he? I mean, what he age was, was Jim when yeah, he died? Yeah, I think he was 64, but I could be wrong now about the age. Um, but yeah, he was quite young. But he made an amazing mark. I mean, not just on Limerick politics, but on Irish politics. And it's as I say, and I mean, even though I'd never, I think I was in his presence once, maybe at a launch of a Sicilian show or something, but mm. he, he left a, a mark on me because mm. he just had this... He had a powerful presence. He did. And, Very but, powerful presence, But you also yeah. got a sense of a, a... There was a... I suppose people respected him. Mm, mm. That's what I saw. He had huge you know, integrity. A lot yeah. of people, one of the things, the most common thing people said about Jim was, well, I don't agree with you about such and such, but, you know. I respect, respect you. you. Yeah. 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 Um, once you started to get into politics, I mean, I went looking back and you think that 1994, the Bishop of Limerick can be sort of saying that you can't make a speech because you were Protestant. And you're, and you're probably ahead of your time when it was looking at women's issues, mm. family planning clinics. Mm. Why do you think it's taken us so long to get to where we are today, where it really seems to finally come to the fore, where women's issues and women's, mm. you know, the equality of treating people equally and with yeah. respect has, it's only now really starting to mm. come to its own. And even now, you know, uh, we're still mean, living issues. The yeah. of women mm. in, in our national parliament, for example, is still very low. Um, I don't know. It took a long time for Ireland to, to move. And then when it moved, it moved quite quickly. I mean, if you think of the last 10 years, like a lot of things have happened, you know, things like marriage equality, like mm. you just wouldn't have dreamt of back when I was involved in politics first. Uh, divorce, we lost the first one. Uh, we won the second one. There were two divorce referendums. Mm. So if divorce was, you know, was Irish people in referendum voted against it. Um, and interestingly, we've had we've had two female presidents that have really made an impact. Yeah, I think yeah. the election of female presidents, um, I, I don't know, I th in some ways people suddenly decided that, look, you know, we we want to let people make their own decisions about their own lives. Um, but it took a long time. I mean, Irish society, when I was growing up, was very... Misogynistic. Yeah, and I mean, you just didn't see women doing anything in any kind of leadership roles whatsoever, you know. I mean, there was a few back in history, Countess Markovic or whatever would be mentioned, but there weren't very many. I mean, there weren't women in politics in Ireland. When you were in, um, you know, I see Limerick and I often think of it, you know, and talking to people over the last few weeks before the podcast, you, I have got a sense that the Limerick, I mean, you're not an elderly person, but the oh. Limerick, Limerick back in the day <laughs> yeah. was, it was a small town. Mm. It was a compact town. It wasn't a city as such. It was a small town. 
there was a very Catholic sort of, you mm. know, you had, you had a lot of churches with a lot of, um, you know, influence in town. Mm. Did you ever feel that you were up against it when you went into the council as a female? Were there, and by the way, were there other females there elected at your me, time? Wynne Harrington, I don't know, again, if many of your listeners will remember when she was an independent, she was a very strong minded personality um, but she was the only one ahead of me so the two of us were on the first council I was on we were the only two women um, yeah I was a bit intimidated to be honest I mean I you know I I kind of I suppose I learnt on the, on the job if you like you know um, but I was kind of determined you know I mean I I wanted to, to succeed and I remember the first time walking over the bridge into Limerick um, up towards that Lunker Street and saying I've actually been elected by the people have chosen me to represent them, you know, and I was extraordinarily honoured by that. I mean, I think it is a great honour to to actually be elected to whatever it is, council, doll, whatever, by your fellow citizens. And um, I suppose that gave me confidence in the sense that mm. if people had put me there, they'd put me there to do a job. And um, I was why do you think do so? So few. I mean, we are we are seeing improvements, but it's still nowhere near where it should be. No. Um, both in local politics and mm. in national. Is there is there a barrier for females, or is there is it just that some females feel that it's it, it it's something that they can't enter? Well, sadly, I think a lot of people, with women in particular are being pushed off at the moment because there's so much going on in terms of intimidation and you know. Um, <clears throat> I heard um, Helen McEntee, Minister of Justice, talking about, um, you know, people picketing TDs' houses, etc. Um, but I, I think, I mean, there, there was, a, you know, a growth to some extent of women over the last number of years in terms of the numbers, but still not nearly enough. Um, part of it is just history. It, it's, it's, you know, say if you take a, a large political party in Ireland, the tradition so-and-so's family was involved in politics and the son comes along and, you know, next person in the generation to, to run. There's a, there's a bit of that. Um, there's also, if, if a branch of a political party has been traditionally male, then it's hard for a woman to break To through. break it. But you, now, you, you it talk happened, up, yeah, go on. I was in a very small political party at the beginning and we we're pretty much equal male and female. So I never actually personally encountered a difficulty around getting myself selected to run, for example. In fact, I was encouraged to run because um, I used to be saying, oh, there should be more women in politics. So they said, well, OK, go on, run. Off you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, when, I'm, when you're saying that and you're seeing that some, some women are being told, you know, maybe they can't get into it, some don't want to, but yet... We are the country that has had marriage referendums. We've mm. had divorce referendums. I still find it fascinating that this is still an issue and, you know, why we aren't seeing that balance creeping up. Yeah. And it was interesting. I li there was a story in the newspaper recently, and I don't know what you thought it would be, but a company put out a press release to say that they had recently appointed a number of female employees mm. and that they had, as a result, balanced their management team, mm, I suppose. Mm, mm. And I saw that and I was going, fair juice to them for doing it. Mm. But the fact that a press release might be released, a uh, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that they felt it was a story. Mm. And I'm going, is it, that, it almost read to me as if we're going to put out the press release because we have almost engineered this. Yeah, yeah, we've engineered this to create a story. Mm. Whereas mm. doing mm. it seems yeah, to be the story. Yeah, Just yeah. let it happen and yeah. let people notice it. Mm. You know. Well, I suppose one of the... The things I've been in favour of, and I, I know others have argued against, is uh, the idea of quotas. Um, you know, and, and it's come in now politically that political parties, if they don't have, you know, if they're running two candidates, that they have to have one male and one female. Um, and you lose, you have to have a certain percentage of your constituencies have to have, um, you know, a certain number of women. Um, and that's actually in the law now in terms of the doll. Um, and I believe in quotas because it, it isn't that you have to vote for a, a woman, but that you have to have the choice to vote for a woman or a man, you know, that that choice should be there. And I mean, the history of other jurisdictions would tell you that the Scandinavian countries, for example, they brought in quotas and they now have nearly an equal balance of male and female representatives in most of the Scandinavian countries. And um, it, it's been done in other countries as well where 
you know, you actually have to break the cycle, if you like, mm. uh, and do something dramatic. To and despite, get more women despite on the, all on the ballot paper, despite and then they will, they will eventually. But and there. despite all of our um, progress, mm. you know, as we said earlier on, marriage referendum, divorce, you know, all all of the stuff that we've done well, female presidents that have really led. Mm. Um, is there still that wink, wink, nudge, nudge stuff that goes on with the polit- political parties? Whereas you said earlier on, you know, daddy was elected yeah, in 82, yeah, yeah. so now son can come mm, straight in. Mm. And um, the question that I ask is that, how can we convince the electorate mm. that this sort of day has to end? That you can't just be voting in people just because they were related to Tom that you liked yeah, back in yeah. 1980? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I suppose if I knew the answer to that, I'd be telling everyone how to have more women in politics. Um, I suppose you have to challenge it in some ways, you know, and say, well, look, you know, do you want, like, just to vote kind of automatically for the crowd you've always been voting for? Or do you, will you actually think about what that person's standing for, you know, and getting a balance? And it's not just women. I mean, you know, there are other minorities that are badly represented as well. Well, women aren't man, aren't a minority, but we're probably the majority, actually. But I mean, there are other sectors of society mm-hmm. that are, are very, very badly represented. But extraordinarily, Limerick City and County, I was, only, I was only the second woman ever elected to the Dáil since the foundation of the state um, in Limerick. It says a lot, amazing. doesn't it? Yeah, you know, And we're pitching ourselves as the second, or we were third, but second city in Ireland. Yeah. You know, that's what we have. It's we, not only Limerick. Um, no, of course not. But the two that were elected were in the city rather than... And the I suppose you could look at some of that and say that there's, um, you know, there's generational sort of histor- historic stuff going on with a lot mm. of those people who get elected as well. You well, know, a lot and, of it is, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's kind of a traditional voters vote for certain people. And then you see there's the, the circles that, men move in maybe sometimes, you know, whether that be sporting circles or business circles or whatever, it might be harder for women to actually either. But, and with but the, on the other hand, women are extraordinarily active in community activity. And that's one of the things I say when I'm talking to women in communities, you know, you, you know how to do it. You're doing it already in your own community. You know, don't be afraid to put your name forward for, for council. You know, you, you do When someone job. does, male or female, mm. You gave up a lot. I mean, you had a family and mm. you had a husband, you had a son mm-hmm. and a daughter, if I'm correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How much of that did you have to sacrifice? Or, you know, is there anything you look back on and you go, mm. oh, I missed out on stuff as yeah. a result? And not just because, I don't mean this mm. from a motherly perspective, yeah, I mean yeah. it as a human being mm. in a family. Mm. It is very hard because, you know, you, you leave Limerick um, on a Tuesday morning normally if you're a regular TD. If you're a minister, you leave on Monday, on Monday evening, and I was a minister. Um, you get back late Thursday night usually. Uh, and then you'll have clinics like Fridays usually, or well, depends, different people organise their clinics in different ways. Um, I did, in the very beginning, I used to have a clinic on a Saturday morning when I was councillor first, but I actually change that um, but I still would have done the, the rural clinics once a month because the constituency obviously had a part of a part of the county as well um, so you you do yeah I mean you know I, I would have found it impossible I think my children were very young I mean when I started in the council they were eight and five by the time I went to to national politics they were teenage my daughter was actually in college my son was still in school in secondary school in Limerick. But um, it's, it is very So difficult. it was more manageable and it was more... It's more manageable when they're older, yeah. I don't know how women do it. Well, it should apply to men as well if they've got to leave their constituency and leave mm. young children too. But, um, I, you know, I suppose... You, it's like anybody who's trying to juggle their lives, you know. There's, I mean, there's working parents listening, I'm sure, now who both are working outside the home and trying to juggle their time and organise their children as well. But the difference when you're a TD is that you actually have to go and spend two or three nights a week away, completely away from your home. And one thing that I have noticed, is there does seem to be a much more of an openness to the, 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 the father being the person who stays at home and actually does that stuff. You know, there's, there's much more there's openness more to now, that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And yeah. it would be very interesting to watch how working from home post-COVID will mm. actually balance mm. that out as well. Well, that's you know? interestingly now, I sometimes collect my granddaughter from Scalida and um, I noticed, you know, when you're standing at the gate, there wouldn't be quite as many men as women, but, you know, probably about a third of the, the people standing at the gate waiting for children are men. Uh, and that wouldn't never have happened, I'd Back say, in, 10 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, talk to me about when in the early days, you know, you, the council particularly. I'd be interested to know, what were the issues that 
that were to the fore in your mind in Limerick City mm. um, when you came into the council for the first time? Yeah, um, well, I suppose housing hasn't gone away. It, it, it was there then and it, it's still there. The condition of council houses was was a big issue then as well, you know, pretty bad conditions. Um, derelict buildings were an issue then. I remember well us talking about derelict sites. Um, again, I, there's something I feel very strongly about is the fact that there's still so many empty buildings, both in the city centre and you know, I was around the housing estates. Um, and it's one of the things I did when I was housing minister was to set up what was called a voids programme, which was funding for councils to bring back empty houses, that houses that had been empty for more than six months. And we created a fund for them to use and um, we would make sure that they actually did it within a certain period of time. I think we need, we need that again now. Um, but... Um, we did talk about derelict sites at the time and there's still, it's one of the things I would really love to see, you know, happen in Limerick is that, for example, the, the empty buildings over shops in the city centre, um, the other spaces that are there in the city that could have people living in them. Um, that's something that I, I feel very strongly about and it's something that, that was still it was an issue when I started on the council as well. When you look at, um, at something like the opera site, for instance, mm. um, a site that has sit, sat there idle probably f for 16 17 years you could mm. argue i would imagine it kind of makes me worried that a local authority will now i understand that part of that development is originally going to be with sunil sharma who was going to develop mm. a, a retail but <clears throat> it has sat there for 16 yeah. years mm. untouched and we're finally on site mm. is the level of development and the pace of development and the ambition of development mm. in Limerick, from your experience in the yeah. earlier days and right up to now, have we been lacking that sort of edge when it comes to the ambition and a willingness to maybe step beyond where we've done before? Yeah, I think we have a lot of plans. Like we've had plans over the years for Limerick, for O'Connell Street, for various parts of the city, but we don't have somebody who actually drives the plan. And I think that's part of the problem, um, you know, to actually make things happen. The same with the derelict houses, you know, to actually make something happen. Um, now, I have a bit of an issue with the Opera Centre. I actually spoke at the oral hearing. I, I'm very disappointed that there are only 16 residential units in it. I th I'd love to have seen an awful lot more um, residential, you know, whether they be apartments or whatever. I, I was interviewing um, someone recently and we spoke about this. And what really worries me was, and I said it to the, the person, was the, the fact that we're building opera in its current guise, mm. at the very same time as we're developing Mungret. Mm. And, by the way, Castle Troy, seeing huge new developments and, mm. and looking at potentially Moiras with land ownership and roads to be put out there potentially. You know, are we still saying to people, come in, work in town, you know, mm. hopefully do a bit of shopping if there's any shops and go yeah. home and clog the roads while you're at it? Yeah, yeah. No, I... I, I passionately believe that uh, we need to, to have more residents. And that's why I did, you know, I, I did actually speak at the oral hearing and, you know, make the case for, for more residential units in there. Um, I don't think we need all that much office space. Um, you know, there's some good things in the Opera Centre, plan for the Opera Centre, but I really don't think we need that amount of office space. We have a, we have a beautiful Georgian core up the, you know, the upper end of the city. We have a beautiful historical area down around the St. Mary's area, around the castle. We've the river, like, I mean, that's another thing that from, you know, when I was on the council, we used to talk about looking back Back onto the, the river, yeah. yeah, it's a famous one. And, yeah. uh, but there's still, you know, the developments on the river, they're not terribly successful. And it was interesting yeah. over COVID, you know, I did walk the, the bridges uh, every day. I'm living right on the waterfront almost. And you saw people who sort of started to re-engage. Mm. And through that, you know, I start to open my eyes and I look at, they've got lighting right. They've got, you know, it, it certainly looks much better than it mm. did. And you have to give credit, yeah, you know, the various boardwalks that were created. Mm. But there are still aspects, mm. particularly down around Brown's Quay, down around St. Mary's yeah. Park, mm. and also the actual vista of the waterfront itself and how we use it. We mm. don't use it for events. We mm. don't use it for screening of movies during the summer. We don't mm. bring mm. the deck chairs down. We put a few benches. Yeah. And so I, that's where I'm coming at. That level of creativity and ambition, yeah. they kind of get it to there mm. and mm. just forget that we can step up. Yeah, yeah. yeah Is that it leadership? Does, it does need to be driven, yeah. And it does need that, that level of leadership. I mean, we have an extraordinary river. Um, you know, it's beautiful. Like no other city certainly in Ireland, has 
a river like the Shannon and how it looks in Limerick. Um, and those banks, like you walked them, I walked them. Um, a lot of people walked during lockdown, places like the Abbey Bank, the Island Bank, and all the way around. Obviously, we've classy and all that as well. It's an extraordinary um, thing for a city to have. Uh, and, uh, and also, we have, you know, the makings of a vibrant city centre, if we can just get there. Um, and, I mean, I walked down two or three Saturdays ago, I walked down Catherine Street uh, at about 10 o'clock in the morning or half 10 maybe. It was buzzing, like coffee, people were sitting outside coffee shops um, down into Little Catherine Street, which was a buzz as well. With the potential like to... Do more of that. To to do more of that. And interesting, what you mentioned there is areas where the car isn't the dominant thing. No, it's not, no. And I think we do have to get cars out of certain streets. Um, you know, I suppose we're not going to be a Galway because our streets are, we have broad streets by and large, but we have some narrower streets and we have some, we have a lot of lanes and so on. But Dublin and Cork are similar. I mean, if you look at the main streets of Dublin, Cork and Limerick, they're, they're wide, big, the big O'Connell Street, um, Patrick Street in Cork. Um, so I think we have to, you know, think around what are the strengths of our city mm. and, you know, develop the waterfront, those other streets, the riverbanks, um, which are, you know, hugely, huge potential. One of the things I did do um, after I retired was that I got involved, I was asked to go on the executive board of the Limerick Civic Trust. And um, they actually have just, they do a lot of work on the riverbanks. And just recently now, the Island Bank, which you will know, um, they've done some work in clearing up down there. Um, But really, we need to keep those things, you know, well, looking well, being comfortable to walk in and um, and safe. Um, and we also then need to look after the communities like St Mary's Park, which we spoke about, um, you know, so that people can live in comfort and peace um, in what, you know, should be a prime place for anyone to live. As someone who had the honour, I mean, you were Minister for State, I think, in the Department of there was the Department of Housing and Local Government, what was it called yeah, at the time? Yeah, I, I was, for eight months, I was Minister of State in Foreign Affairs. Yes. Um, so kind of one of the things that I was involved in there was making sure the Irish Aid Office didn't move out of Limerick. Limerick. Um, then, Still there, by the way, folks. Yes, um, <laughs> no, there were obviously other very important When Jan comes knocking the at the next election, I'm just... <laughs> I won't be, I won't be, I'm retired. Um, and uh, then I was Minister of State in the Department of, it was Housing, Community and Local Government at that time. I think it's changed its name now again. Um, and I had responsibility for housing and planning for about two years, was it? Yeah, about two years. And as your experience as, a, as, as someone in that role, mm. you're now seeing the classic example of the housing crisis that has mm. creeped in here. And in Limerick, you know, I, I've seen plans which were, I, someone showed me plans the other day for a plan that was created in 2006 for the area down around Condell Road, right mm-hmm. out to Barrington's Pier. Mm. So it was incredibly visual, um, visionary. Then you have, I've seen the plans now recently for the um, Canal Bank. They're, mm. In fact, they're going back yeah. in for planning for that. Mm. We have Opera, which, as we've said earlier, mm. failed to do it. Cleves, I, I, mightn't, I mightn't see Cleves yeah, in my lifetime based happen, upon the current pace. Yeah. But I suppose where I'm coming from, we have a housing crisis. Yeah. And yet we can't get people to build in, particularly in urban areas where it seems to be a trend that urbanism and urban living and living cities mm. need to work. Yeah. It's the donut where are thing. The, the donut yeah, thing is yeah, continuing, yeah, but yeah. this is more, yeah. we're having seeing a donut now in terms mm. of residential. Mm. But what is the issue when it comes to an urban centre like Limerick and mm. getting, is it cost? Is it ability to, to deliver? Is it European funding? Like what is it we could do to actually deliver these things? Yeah, I, there aren't really big obstacles. I don't know if it's just the will, you know. I mean, the, if you look at, like the Edward Street development was one of the ones that I was involved in, in initiating and um, beautiful, you know, lovely city centre accommodation. The flats there just up from the station have been done up recently, the hydro flats. Um, like they're lovely accommodation now, both of which are council schemes. Um, Could you have argued the, though, Jan, that that particular development beside yeah. the station, mm. and I thought about it at the time, for the number of units that were in that, mm. and I remember what it looked like before, yeah. had you removed that, had you extended the People's Park to that mm. lovely corner park in the, in front mm. and then back into Jackman Park almost, yeah. you could have created this new centre of town which was formed around green space that gave mm. green space back to people and then allowed development happen around that. Yeah. And that... 
barricaded that by, mm. by you know, could we have done something different? Maybe, by, but I suppose if you think about that time, that was the time when we had no money. <laughs> I mean, that was after the crash. Mm-hmm. We, when, you know... You needed to I, do something. When I was Minister for Housing, I wasn't getting more money every year. I was having to cut my budget. So, you know, you... Like one of the reasons I did the void scheme, which was bringing back council houses into use, was because we couldn't actually, build. we didn't have any money to mm. allocate to, to build new houses by and large. We had some, but not not a lot. Um, I think this station, the whole, you know, this plan around Colbert the station, station, yeah. I think there's the potential for a lot of residential units in that area. And I mean, I for a long time I've talked about the Guinness site, that, that area there. Um, where you could have, you know, a really nice, maybe a cost rental scheme or affordable housing scheme. Um, How do you get around the issue that we we made the mistake years ago where we decided that we would put people of a socio-demographic background all in one place mm, with very mm. little services, almost like sticking them to the four corners of the city and saying, out you go now, out of our um, visual sort of Mm, linear look. How do we get around getting that balance right going forward? Because I firmly believe, and you're talking education Mm, earlier, mm. that, you know, if you're sticking a group of people who don't see education and haven't seen education mm. for generations as being mm. part of their lives mm. altogether, there's a likelihood yeah. they won't have education. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you were to give them an opportunity to live side by side with people who maybe are being inspired to do that, mm. it changes mm. possibly the outlook yeah. and the result. Well, that's, I mean, that idea of that uh, affordable or cost rental housing, um, cost rental is basically where you would have people with different financial um, ability, you know, I mean, that's the kind of scheme I would love to see happening mm-hmm. in around the the um, station area, um, the, the Guinness site there off Kerry's Road, those kinds of areas where you would bring in people with different levels of <coughs> of income, um, <coughs> and we do need that. I mean, Limerick, I suppose, it is one of the problems that you know we inherited from the past. I mean, the building of South Hill and the building of Myros, I think, were acknowledged as being mistakes. You know, they were too big. They were at the edge of the city. They were too big, and um, and then that there was a scheme whereby people um, were given was it five thousand pounds at the time, where um, if you moved out of a council estate and bought your own house, you got five thousand pounds towards it or something like that. So a lot of the people who you know were employed, uh, who had you know reasonably good jobs but lived in those areas, actually moved out. Moved out. So a lot yeah. of you know it then became even more sort of people of you know, of a certain income. And um, again, when I got in, when I came into regeneration, one of the things we did when we changed the policy back in 2013 was to actually decide that instead of spending money on buying houses out in the suburbs for people who wanted to move out of council estates, that we would actually put the money back into the estates. Now, that has slowed down and there's rightly a lot of criticism at the moment about regeneration and, you know... Yeah, we have two years happening. to go on that. And do you think it... Yeah. I mean, did it work? I I think, I don't know why, but nothing very much seems to have happened over the last few years. And I don't know why that but is. Probably a lot of money spent. And that's, uh, that is a worry. There was money spent. Yeah. And there's, I mean, people living in those areas will tell you that there was more money spent on knocking houses and, um, you know. Putting um, cameras up that don't work. Yeah. yeah well, I, I don't know about that. I'm not sure <laughs> if the cameras don't work, but anyway, <laughs> maybe they don't. Well, um, sometimes they don't seem to see things that I but, see, but. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know if it's the cameras, to be honest. Um, <laughs> question. Leader we mentioned it earlier on we're now looking hopefully about, about in relation to a directly elected mayor which we did mm. pass by plebiscite um, yeah. a number of years ago did that surprise you when it passed it didn't really um it surprised me that the other cities didn't go for it mm-hmm. actually um i was very surprised that they didn't and i was delighted that limerick did i mean i do think that it, it was a real opportunity i'm worried now because they seem to be watering down the legislation and i don't think there's any point whatsoever in electing a a directly a elected mayor who has no power. Hmm. Um, and you just you're you're an insider on this. I mean, so the, it's obviously civil servants who are trying to do this, probably yeah. with a few politicians saying we don't want this. Oh, probably do you with think ministers who don't want to? Who don't want you, but, from their there you go. And if yeah. Cork, Dublin didn't have a chance, but if Cork, for instance, had mm. passed that plebiscite mm. at the time. Do you think we'd be looking at that at the moment or would they be saying, look, let's give it to Cork and let's give them a real chance to showcase? Yeah. Because I have a feeling Dublin will vote for this in time. It seems yeah. to be going that direction. And mm-hmm. it's almost as if little Limerick went for it. We kind of didn't think they would. Mm-hmm. And are mm-hmm. we going to give them a chance? Not a hope. Mm-hmm. But actually, we have good leaders on the ground around Limerick. There's a chance that we could have a mm-hmm. fair few interesting candidates yeah. if we were to get. Mm-hmm. So the question I have for you is, like, at what point will they turn around and 
and, and keep it dampened or will they just give us the chance to really shine? Well, you see, I think we have to fight for it. I, I don't think they'll give it to us unless we fight for it. I mean, if they can get away with damping it down and maybe putting it off for another couple of years until Dublin is ready as well, um, then that might well happen. I it's think, undermining us, isn't yeah, it? We, I really strongly feel that we need to fight for the kind of powers and functions that we voted for in the referendum because we were, were given, you know, before we voted for it, we were told a certain amount about what, what kind of powers and functions the mayor would have. Uh, and if they water that down, then they are letting us down because we democratically voted for it. So I think we, the people of Limerick, have to fight to ensure that we get the kind of powers and functions that we voted for. Uh, and I think secondly, it's, a, it's that, coming to a thousand days in February, by the way. Secondly, then, that we get the, the legislation hasn't been published yet and that the heads of the bill have been published and had scrutiny in the in the Oireachtas Committee. But the actual bill hasn't been published or debated yet. We need to fight to get that done as quickly as possible. And um, I think that the actual campaign uh, and, you know, the kind of points that people make and the arguments people make for making them the directly elect mayor, which by the way I'm not interested in I was running. going to ask you yeah. uh, no I'm I mean, not okay um, firmly uh, out so no no personal interest you won't here. be coming back knocking on doors <laughs> no saying, I won't um, you've been mayor <laughs> well, before well I will be knocking on doors yeah. but not for myself um, does that suggest that a, a Labour candidate might run well I'd say so yeah oh, I mean, it's go. not decided yet, you have it here uh, now folks but anyway um, I, you know I, I think that I hope the public will ask the hard questions as yeah. well you know what and I think it needs I think this has to be treated in my view and I've, I've been saying it for a couple of years it's it's a very exciting time if we get if we get the right mm. legislation drafted but this has got to be about I think less about the political party and more mm. about the candidate that is put forward and how a, their ability to deliver at a level that we need. Mm. We've been missing the leadership yeah. and we can't keep going back and I'm not saying that everybody's everybody in politics is is, is mm unable to deliver but there has been a track record of a few you know well it's it's, it's it's the system at the moment like with the department of housing and the council and the elected people and all of that uh, and the planning system and the whole lot the, you know there's nobody really pushing you know everybody's kind of doing their own bit of it but um i think a directly elected mayor really would be an opportunity that there's one person who you know has the power and what would be the traits that you would think, three traits you think a directly elected mayor should have if they were going to bring Limerick to that level that we've needed, that we haven't had for recent years? Yeah, well, first of all, an ambition for Limerick, you know, a kind of a vision of, of what, what they want to do and, and what, what can be done, like what Limerick can do. Um, I, I, you know, I absolutely do believe that it has to be somebody who also has the ability to bring people with them because you're going to have the rest of the elected councillors, you're going to have the, the council officials, and you're going to have, you know, the, it's the city and the county, so you're going to have people arguing for their own areas. And, I mean, I think there's huge potential, by the way, in the towns and villages in the county as well to, to you know, have the kind of town centre thing we've been talking about, you know, more people living in the towns, more vibrant towns. So I think it's a real opportunity as well for the towns in the county as well as for, for the city. But uh, so I suppose the ability, as I said, first of all, this kind of ambition for Limerick. Secondly, um, the kind of ability to, to, to bring people with you, to inspire people and to make it happen and a determination. To, to do to get the job done. well, to do the job well, yeah. Final question, because you've been very good with your time. Um, we are potentially looking at, uh, certainly uh, they're looking at 30, 35% in the polls at the moment with Sinn Féin. Mm. Um, could you ever see Labour going into government with Sinn Féin if they were, if they realised there's, there's a chance uh, and that Sinn Féin needed them? And secondly, would you be able to, would you be comfortable with a Sinn Féin government? Well, I wouldn't, first of all, go in because Sinn Féin needed us. I mean, that's not, that's not any reason to go into government with anyone. Um, I mean, I, I'd be slow to go into government at the moment anyway, I think, um, because maybe because the experience of going in as a smaller party, um, it's very hard to have the power to do what you want to do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have, I suppose... A lot of people would have real concerns, and I do have real concerns about some things that I associate Sinn Féin with. But I've never had the attitude that you rule people out completely. Um, that I, I think you've got to, if you are going to go into government with anyone, it's got to be on the basis of agreed policies and an agreed programme. Um, and 
I wouldn't shut the door on anyone. I, w- I would talk to them. But um, I would have, I think we, we all have a little bit of concern about the past uh, in relation to Sinn Féin. And uh, I suppose that would be in the back of my mind. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't close my mind to any, anybody really, except probably a far right party. Super. Look, um, Posterity Podcast, final question. When you're long gone and your grandkids and your great-grandkids are, are looking at the limerick of the future, and if, you, if we have an opportunity to de- today to deliver something that will shape their futures in a happy way, mm. what do you think those couple of things we could really do now that would leave you go to your maker or wherever you're going to go, <laughs> content that the future for them is possibly in a better place? I think I'd want opportunity for everybody. Um, you know, at the moment, there are still kids in Limerick who, no matter how hard they try, even though things have improved in terms of access, for example, to education, access to a good job. Um, and I would include, by the way, apprenticeships and all of those kinds of opportunities as well. I, I wouldn't be elitist at all about what c- characterises good opportunities. But I would like a Limerick where no matter how you were, where you were born or, you know, what opportunities your parents had, that you would have that opportunity as well. And I'd like my grandchildren to live in a city that was open-minded, welcoming, um, enjoyable to live in, um, a lively, um, creative city. Um, you were the first person, I leave it on this, I, you were the first person in politics locally who, you proffered an idea a few years back where it was the idea of putting an urban beach in the city centre and I loved it. I was going, this is the first time. I, I got a lot of criticism for that. And this is what killed me. It was like, we are finally seeing a politician. Okay, it's tiny bunkers and I, yeah, there are, but I was in Berlin and I went and I ended up going to a nice... Did you not see the sand? But there's floating beaches. You can do, there's all sorts of things you can do yeah. with a bit of mechanisms. But you right know, the- not far where you live now, there's, um, I was sitting on the steps of the, the banks, the, the mm. The baths in, in uh, Top of St. Mary's Park there yeah. near the community centre <laughs> during lockdown. <laughs> Don't tell me you had a sun towel and you had, no, had, we're had sitting a, there an and umbrella. There was sand down at the bottom of the steps. <laughs> oh, oh, sand down at the bottom of the steps. And there's a bit of sand near the Corrigar Boat Club as well. It's there for about 10 so, minutes now potential. with the tide. But yeah, no, there is. But, uh, but I, I just mean it like that. No, I, I love you I love when you, it you love the, it, you It's know, the whatever. creativity. Yeah, and yeah, I think that, you know, the the ability to have a bit of fun with your city as well. Yeah, and if yeah. something goes wrong, you know, hold yeah. your hands up. I mean, remember years ago that Christmas tree ended up going pear-shaped. I think poor old Kieran Lahan was chasing it down the Shannon at one point. But, you know, things go wrong and you might have a photo yeah. opportunity overnight, but at least they tried something different. And, Absolutely, yeah. And maybe yeah. episodes like that make people afraid to try something just a bit bonkers. And you um, know, like we've the art college in yeah. the middle of the city, like sort of creative people, you but know. There's, um, I mean, and we should be asking them maybe a bit I think, more about, you I know, think that thing that was put out recently yeah. about the whole idea of having a nightmare and having young people who might be yeah. more advisory in terms of what they want. We mm-hmm. are, there's interesting stuff happening in Limerick and I think mm-hmm. if, if, if the powers that be embraced that a little bit more, we could be a very fun place to live. Yeah. Um, look, thank you so much for joining <laughs> me. Um, I'll see you on the beach. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, it's been wonderful and I wish you all the best. I, I'm, I'm glad to see that you're um, healthy and well and you're enjoying retirement. Absolutely. Oh Brilliant. yeah. And I'm enjoying Brilliant. Limerick in retirement yeah. as well because I'm doing Good. a huge amount of walking. Yeah. Well, look, keep it up. And Janice Sullivan, thank you very much for joining me on the Posterity Podcast. Thank you very much, Nigel. Cheers. You've been listening to the Posterity Podcast with me, Nigel Dugdale, produced by the Limerick Post in association with Limerick City Community Radio. Theme tune composed by David Blake and performed by the Brad Pitt Light Orchestra. If you want to get in touch with me or suggest any future guests, you can contact me directly on Twitter at Limerick City Biz or you can contact the Limerick Post at Limerick Post.